The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines. Ukraine rejects Russian demands to surrender Maripol as fighting intensifies in the besieged southeastern city, whilst Russian forces cut the region off from the Sea of Azov amid a growing humanitarian crisis. Blockaded Mariupol will go down in the history of responsibility for war crimes. To do this with the peaceful city that the occupiers did is a terror that will be remembered in a century. China, meanwhile, though, deflecting criticism, insisting it is on the right side of history over the invasion of Ukraine as President Biden warns of consequences if Beijing provides material support to Moscow. But China's foreign minister hits back at what it calls US interference. We will not accept any external coercion or pressure and oppose any groundless accusations or suspicions against China. U.S. and European stocks log their best week since 2020, but Asian equities start out on a more muted note. And Germany agrees a new long-term energy partnership with Qatar as Europe's biggest economy looks to wean itself off its dependency on Russian energy. Meanwhile, Saudi Aramco's four-year net profit more than doubles as the world's largest oil producer benefits from soaring oil prices. Right, good morning everybody. Let's give you the latest. Uh, Ukraine has refused to surrender Maripol after Russia's defence ministry gave Kiev a Monday morning deadline to relinquish control of the port city. This in exchange for opening humanitarian corridors from citizens from 10 a.m. Moscow time or 7 GMT. The city, which has seen some of the heaviest fighting since the Russian invasion, continued to sustain heavy attacks over the weekend. President Zelensky said an art school that was sheltering civilians was amongst Russia's most recent targets. Kiev also says it has lost access to the Sea of Azov for the first time. If Russia gains full control of Maripol, it would have captured a vast strategic area of the southern coast and an important conduit into the Black Sea. The president, Mr Zelensky, has called on world leaders to take a tougher stance on Russia and reiterated the need for negotiations. Blockaded Mariupol will go down in the history of responsibility for war crimes. To do this with the peaceful city that the occupiers did is a terror that will be remembered in a century. And the more Ukrainians talk about it to the world, the more we find support. The more Russia uses terror against Ukraine, the worse the consequences for it. Meanwhile, the dialogue continues as U.S. President Joe Biden is set to host a call with the leaders of France, Germany, Italy and the U.K. All this will be held this morning to discuss the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On Wednesday, Biden will head to Brussels for meetings with NATO, European and G7 leaders. This will be followed by a bilateral meeting with the Polish President Duda in Warsaw on Friday as the country deals with an influx of more than 2 million Ukrainian refugees. The White House said Biden will not be travelling to Ukraine. NATO is stepping up support for Ukraine, according to the alliance's Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg. Speaking to NBC's Meet the Press, he confirmed NATO's commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty. 
our responsibility is to support Ukraine as we do in many different ways, but also ensure that this conflict do not spiral out of control or, or, or expands and escalate beyond Ukraine. And that's also the reason why we have significantly increased our military presence in the eastern part of the alliance. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is saying that improving NATO's operations to even uh, stronger levels is more vital now, adding that Russia has made some incremental gains in the south of Ukraine. I would also say that they've used uh, some brutal, savage uh, techniques in terms of uh, the way that they've been targeting civilian populations, uh, centers, and, and, uh, and again, we would hope that they would choose a different path. They've, uh, the amount of pain that the civilians have uh, uh, endured down there is, uh, it's just been hard to, uh, to watch uh, as they've uh, continued to do that. In terms of their planning uh, and whether or not they intend to, uh, uh, to make a move on uh, uh, that city or any other city in the, in the south in the near term, and I, I can't speak to Russian planning, I would just say that we don't see indications of that uh, right now. President Biden has warned China's Xi Jinping of the consequences of providing material support to Russia during a two-hour video call between the two leaders on Friday. President Xi stressed the importance of a humanitarian solution, but refused to pin the blame on Putin. Sam Badas joins us now with more. Sam, I think it's fair to say that the world is watching how Xi Jinping and China responds to Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Tell us more about this phone call and what uh, President Biden's message for Xi Jinping Ping was and his response. Good morning to you, Juliana. Well, I mean, no major outcomes from this uh, almost two-hour phone call between Biden and Xi on Friday night, which I suppose underscores the deepening divide between the U.S. and China at the moment. As you mentioned, as expected, Biden did have a warning for Xi that China will pay if it certainly helps Russia circumvent some of these sanctions and also provides this material support. The U.S. have made that very clear that uh, China or any country, for that matter, uh, will pay the price if it does help. Uh, help Russia, certainly, but uh, Biden didn't really seem to convince China to use its close ties with Moscow to try to mediate here between uh, Russia and Ukraine, as had been uh, somewhat expected, or uh, there had been some suggestions. And it's interesting, actually, we did see a tweet from uh, Liu Xin, who's a very well-known uh, CGTN anchor, her interpretation of that. Uh, can you help me fight your friends so I can concentrate on fighting you later? So no ambiguity there. Uh, certainly a very clear-cut messages to how China sees all this. President Xi Jinping uh, certainly went into this meeting with a, a much more neutral stance. China, of course, has been playing this very uh, careful game and has been sitting on the fence. And Wang Yi seemingly echoed this defending President Xi Jinping's uh, position over the weekend. This is China's foreign minister saying China uh, is sitting on the right side of history. Take a listen. We have always stood for maintaining peace and opposing war. This is embedded not only in China's history and culture, but also in the foreign policy China is always committed to. Therefore, we will continue to make an independent assessment based on the merits of each matter and in an objective and impartial manner. We will not accept any external coercion or pressure and oppose any groundless accusations or suspicions against China. 
So Wang Yi seemingly echoing China's denial there that Russia has asked Beijing for help when it comes to military equipment. Of course, China has also denied that it knew about this invasion beforehand, saying that if it did, it would have tried to prevent it. We also had the vice foreign minister seemingly defended China's position as well, uh, particularly on the sanctions, calling them outrageous. So I think this phone call uh, certainly appeared to have further provoked criticism of the US and not surprisingly, given that China China was never going to go into this, uh, certainly lying down uh, in the face of what it sees as perceived pressure. I think it's interesting to look at the statements that both Beijing and the White House released following this phone call. China's was a lot longer and much more comprehensive than the very brief statement that the White House put out. Uh, in terms of the messaging there, of course, both sides certainly agreed that they don't want to see this conflict. They don't want to see this war. There's no doubt about that and that they should keep uh, communicating uh, but they are using very different language of course Beijing has refused to call Russia's moves here an invasion and continues to not do so uh, as I say it also doesn't agree with these sanctions I picked up a couple of interesting lines from the uh, very long uh, transcript that the uh, Chinese side put out Chinese sayings uh, that President Xi Jinping says it takes two hands to clap uh, he also said it takes a uh, who who tied the bell to the tiger must take it off. So certainly suggesting uh, that you can't blame one side and the person or the side that created the problem must fix it. Uh, so certainly using two Chinese sayings to reject a lot of this Western pressure that we've seen, guys. Uh, Sam, I've been reading vast amounts about what China is drawing from this, about Western unity and their concerns of that, about what Western sanctions can do uh, meaningfully on a globalised context and also, of course, parallels between perhaps Chinese aspirations for Taiwan and what this means as well. I just wonder if you've picked up any broader picture issues and concerns from China uh, about the events in Russia uh, and Ukraine, what the West has done and what the parallels are for its sphere of influence. Yeah, look, it's interesting that you mentioned Taiwan because, of course, a lot of people have been drawing these parallels between what is going on in Ukraine and also Taiwan. I think a lot of analysts have been careful to compare the two. Uh, certainly, China has said that the two things are, are not the same, but there are uh, certainly common threads and themes in terms of territorial integrity. Uh, as I say, it was interesting that you picked up on that, Steve, because uh, this is one of the main things that President Xi Jinping really talked about uh, in this meeting uh, with President Biden over the phone, despite a lot of the chat being about Ukraine, was certainly Beijing's displeasure with this perception of uh, these closer ties being forged between Washington and Taipei, because you've got to remember that Beijing was very angered by the US sending a delegation of officials to Taiwan just days after this invasion. So President Xi Jinping, as expected, was going to go into this with a very clear message for Biden, uh, certainly about uh, these pro-independent forces over uh, in Taiwan, which it says it doesn't want the US to back. So, uh, yeah, that is a, a very important point, certainly for China, in terms of this idea of uh, territorial integrity and its foreign policy, guys. Back to you.
Sam, thank you so much for that coverage. Uh, let's take a look at U.S. markets now and how we closed out the week on Friday. It was a positive session with all three major indices ending higher. A big focus for the week overall was the Federal Reserve delivering their interest rate rise, but more importantly, um, the Fed chair delivering what seems to have been taken as a reassuring message about the U.S. economic outlook, suggesting that uh, recession is unlikely at this point. We saw this major rally take shape uh, on the back of that meeting. So here's a look at how U.S. markets closed up for the week overall. Uh, incredibly strong session, several sessions for U.S. markets. If we can flip over and show you the weekly moves, we saw the Dow gain more than 5%, the S&P 500 more than 6%, and the NASDAQ gaining more than 8%. The Dow Jones broke a five-week losing streak. Two-week losing streaks were broken for the S&P and the NASDAQ. In terms of fixed income, here's a look at how treasuries are, are holding up right now. We did see U.S. Treasury yields end the week higher. Again, that um, Powell message firmly in focus. You've got the U.S. 10-year currently trading um, with a yield of around 2.15%. In terms of currencies, this is how the dollar is holding up. Last week, interestingly, we did see the U.S. dollar retreat about 0.9%, breaking a three-week win streak. So as investors put more money to work in risk assets, they seem to have taken it out of the safe haven dollar. This morning, we've got the euro trading on the back foot versus the greenback. Sterling also trading weaker versus the dollar. We've got a little bit of strength in the dollar versus the yen and the yuan. Energy markets. Let's take a look at WTI and Brent. We've got Brent uh, hovering around the $111 per barrel mark, so marching higher yet again, about 3.2% today. WTI trading around $108 a barrel. We did see oil climb on Friday, but we did uh, overall have a move lower in the price of oil last week. Asian markets. Let's see how they are faring overnight. Well, worth noting, the Japanese market is closed, but we do have a bit of weakness for mainland China. Uh, the Shanghai Composite edging lower this morning. The Hang Seng also edging lower. Um, last week, incredibly volatile for both mainland Chinese and Hong Kong markets with the tech sector sharply in focus. So relatively muted start compared to the moves we saw last week. And finally, European opening calls. This is the picture for the European market open. It looks as though some of that weakness in Asia is having an impact on sentiment here in Europe. We're looking at a modestly negative start to the trading session. Karen. Juliana, thank you. Let's talk a little bit more about the Fed because it seems like there might be more than just one dissenter, not just Bullard wanting that 50 basis point rate hike because Federal Reserve Governor Christopher Waller has told CNBC he's open to hiking rates by 50 basis points at one or more of this year's meetings. Waller characterized inflation as raging, adding that he favors front-loading rate hikes. His comments come as Pimlo co-founder Bill Gross warns that rising rates above 2.5% could crack the U.S. economy. Now, Gross has told the Financial Times the housing market could break if rates were pushed higher. Waller told CBC he wanted to vote for a 50 basis point hike in the first recent meeting, but geopolitical concerns convinced him otherwise. And the data is basically screaming at us to go 50, but the geopolitical events were telling you to go forward with caution. So those two factors combined pushed me off of a, uh, advocating for a 50 basis point hike at this meeting and supporting the 25 per, uh, point hike that we uh, enacted. So going forward, that'll be an issue whether to think about going 50 in the next couple of meetings or not. Coming up on the show, we'll continue to focus the spotlight on oil as Saudi Aramco's net profit more than doubles as the energy price soars. The energy giant getting a boost, of course, from that rally in the commodity price. We'll dig into the numbers a little bit more. And don't forget, for continuing coverage of Ukraine, 
and how global markets along with asset classes are reacting, you can listen into the Squawk podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back to Squawk Box. We're closely monitoring the COVID situation across Asia. Hong Kong planning now to ease COVID-19 rules with a flight ban from some countries set to be scrapped on the 1st of April. Hotel quarantine for arrivals would be cut from 14 days to seven as long as the travelers test negative. Chief Executive Carrie Lam announced the new steps earlier today. Hong Kong's border has been largely shut since 2020, isolating the global financial hub. In a press conference, Lam said easing travel rules is a key part of the gradual reopening of the Hong Kong economy. We have to maintain our perseverance and confidence. Businesses and the public must understand the direction of our anti-epidemic measures. Parents should know about the arrangements for class resumption and have to make preparations for the relaunch of the economy. In 2022, the employment support scheme will pave the way for the relaunch of our economy. The city of Xilin is main, in mainland China has ordered its citizens to stay at home, impacting around 4.5 million people for at least three days. Nearby provincial capital Shangshun was put under a lockdown earlier this month. In Shanghai, Disney announced it would close its theme park, citing concerns over the COVID outbreaks in the country. Meanwhile, in tech hub Shenzhen, authorities have eased restrictions, allowing companies and government organizations to resume normal operations. Germany relaxed some COVID rules on Sunday, despite virus cases hitting new record highs. Masks will no longer be required on long-distance transport, including airplanes. The requirement for people to be vaccinated, tested, or recently recovered from an infection has been scrapped for long-distance rail travel and workplaces, although companies can set up their own rules. German states are free to maintain more stringent restrictions, with multiple states already announcing they will keep some measures in place until next month. COVID cases are on the rise again around Europe, including in the UK, France, Switzerland, Italy, and the Netherlands. This is attributed to the spread of Omicron subvariant known as BA2. This mutated version of the COVID-19 virus has been described as a stealth variant because unlike the original Omicron, this one is difficult to distinguish from Delta. Head to CNBC.com to read more on the subvariant and how it could impact the direction of the pandemic. Right, I think this is a very big story over the medium term. Uh, the EU will reportedly debate imposing an embargo on Russian oil imports this week as the bloc considers its latest response to the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. Baltic countries are pushing for the measure, according to Reuters. The US has already announced it will stop Russian energy imports. Uh, but European countries have so far declined 
to make the same move. And, and this, this is the point really here. Germany and Qatar are now holding talks over a long-term energy deal as Berlin looks to wean itself off Russian energy. The German economy minister, Robert Harbeck, held talks with Qatari officials over the weekend. Harbeck said Russia would not need Russian energy in the future. And there was an extraordinary line from Harbeck, which I wanted the team to put in here. It, it starts like this. So he who has ears should start to listen. Now, my understanding, Annette, is that there is a direct um, comment to the Russian president, to Mr. Putin, saying, look, we can find alternatives. In the short term, Europe needs Russian gas and oil. But over the medium term, we all know that in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, in the, uh, the Gulf, there is vast quantities of gas, which once turned into LNG, can find its way to European ports. The question is the scale and the time frame, Annette. Good morning to you. the key question, the scale and the time frame, and also the fact that Germany does not have any terminals yet and takes roughly three years, at least according to experts, to build up an LNG terminal. Currently, one is planned. They're now looking into building two. Um, and the other issue is that LNG gas, on average, is much more expensive than the natural gas coming from Russia right now. So I think energy costs in general will be a lot higher um, given also the transformation into the renewable space. So there are these two sides. We don't know yet how much um, the contract will be in terms of volume with Qatar. We also don't know uh, when they are planning on starting the delivery. Robert Habeck was um, alluding to the fact that there's no terminal uh, also during that visit, um, saying that they're hoping to cut short the time in which they can build one in Wilhelmshaven, which is north in Germany. So I think it's not something which can happen uh, until the end of this year, i.e. for the next winter season. But Perhaps in two years' time, um, Germany can wean itself off uh, from Russian gas. But the, also, the plan is not to subsidize, uh, not to. Um have a 100% reliance or 55% reliance then in the future on Qatari gas, but to diversify the energy supply which Germany needs to like 10 to 20% from each region or country. At least that's what the delegation has said to the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, who was with Robert Habeck in Qatar. So essentially, there are steps in the right direction, but there is no immediate effect to wean, its, wean Germany off Russian gas. And B, it will be much more expensive in the future. Annette, you and I have talked about this many times. I used to talk about this with Sylvia Vardvar as well, one of our great uh, alumni at CNBC as well. Why on earth has German policy left itself in such dire straits, uh, Ray Russia, over the last 20 years plus as well. I appreciate the need for rapprochement between these two historical adversaries. But the fact of the matter is, whether it's Gerhard Schroeder, whether it's Frau Merkel, there has been an enormous failure of, of German geopolitical reasoning uh, to trust the Russians so wholeheartedly with such an enormous part of Germany's energy needs. Are people in Germany now beginning to realise that Frau Merkel may have been mistaken in some of her policies and certainly Gerhard Schroeder's relationship with Russia is somewhat uncomfortable? Well, um, yes, in a way, uh, Angela Merkel's approach and all these, uh, but also before Gerhard Schröder's approach to 
um, rather, uh, yeah, we, we call it hand, uh, wandel durch handel, so change through trade. That was the mantra of a long time. So after the Cold War, it was more or less, um, yeah, I think the idea was to have Russia as a close trading bar partner and by that then um, circumvent any escalation and have the close diplomatic ties. Um, that this also meant having a Russian gas and being completely energy dependent on Russia was part of that story. But of course, we are now in a situation where we see that this actually did not work off and there are no friendly, they are no friendly partners and that there has been an alienation between both sides, uh, Russia and the West, uh, taking place for many, many years, not only since 2014. There are so many um, experts now discussing at what point in time things went into the wrong direction. I think you can't really say what it was, but there was an alienation taking place for many years and nobody really looked at it um, and yet made a decision on what it means for energy security. Annette, great points about merchant and customer that the two need to have a dialogue and that can stretch beyond just commerce. Uh, let me take you to the oil price this morning and we can see how it's trading. We've bounced a pretty strongly morning session up more than 3% on both trades. Uh, Brent uh, now sitting above 111, 108 on WTI. And this is interesting given we lost about 4% on the trade last week. So morning session uh, on Monday, we're almost recapturing some of those losses from last week. Meanwhile, net profit at the oil giant Saudi Aramco more than doubled in 2021 to $110 billion as the company capitalised on the surge in global crude prices. Let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, as we talked this morning about potential discussion about an oil embargo from the Europeans joining the likes of the US and the UK, it does beg the question how pivotal the likes of Saudi Aramco and Saudi Arabia will be in this uh, equation here. What do you make of the resilience, yeah. given there have also been some attacks over the weekend on those Aramco facilities? Yeah, absolutely critical, Karen. And these were bumper results from the world's largest crude oil producer. You mentioned they're up 124%, $110 billion for the full year 2021. That's compared to $49 billion back in 2020. And Aramco saying this result doesn't just reflect higher crude oil prices, it's also stronger margins across its refining and chemicals business, which is becoming increasingly important now that it has also folded in Sabic, which is the chemicals arm. And at the same time, Aramco is recognizing that the world is going to need more oil in the future. It announced plans to invest to increase crude oil production capacity to 13 million barrels per day by 2027. It also plans to expand its liquid to chemical production facilities and increase gas production by more than 50% by 2030. Interesting commentary here from Aramco President and CEO Amanasa speaking on the earnings call. He offered a very wide range of views on everything from soaring energy prices to the invasion of Ukraine. And the bottom line is that he says, although economic conditions have improved considerably, the outlook remains uncertain due to various macroeconomic and geopolitical factors. Here's part of what he had to say. Listen in. Even before the Ukraine crisis, the market was very tight. There is healthy demand, spare capacity. Everything I talked about was even before the crisis. The crisis even made things even worse. And uh, investment need to increase substantially. Uh, we are hoping that the situation will ease up uh, between Russia and Ukraine and things will get back to normal. However, 
it will continue to be very tight uh, in 2022. And this was a very important earnings call at a very critical time because unlike the Western big oil majors, Aramco up until this point had not commented on the Russian invasion or the impact of those sanctions so far, and that's understandable. It's a delicate issue given Riyadh's close ties to Moscow, but the company held the line when pressed on this multiple times on that earnings call yesterday, saying it doesn't have major business interests in Russia and that ultimately it hoped this conflict would be resolved soon. So bottom line here is that business is good for Aramco. It also declared a fourth quarter dividend of $18.8 billion. It wants to give back to investors as well. It's going to recommend that $4 billion in retained earnings be used to pay bonus shares to investors subject to shareholder, shareholder approval. It means shareholders would receive one bonus share for every 10 shares owned. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, Karen, this result in earnings call also came just hours after Saudi authorities confirmed that another attack had taken place on Aramco facilities on Sunday. Houthi rebels using missiles and drones to target at least six sites across Saudi Arabia. Of course, we had the opportunity to ask the Aramco president and CEO about that attack. He said there were no injuries, no fatalities and no impact on the company's supplies to its customers, really underscoring how during the Abqaiq attacks back in 2019, Aramco was able to remain resilient and continue to provide to its customers despite the uh, ongoing and persistent attacks that we see leveled towards Saudi Arabia from Houthi rebels based out of Yemen. It's back over to you, Karen. Dan, can I just pick up on that point a little bit more? Because uh, the geopolitics are somewhat hard to unravel at this point. And if we look at some of the comments that those Houthi rebels have made before, they have supported Russia in the invasion of Ukraine here. So do you think we could be seeing the long arm of Moscow involved in some of the politics here? And you can see how it would play to, to Moscow's advantage if there happened to be a, a view that perhaps the, the Saudi picture was a little bit cloudier when it comes to resilience around the oil price. Indeed, and it's a very interesting dynamic at the moment as well, because all of this is taking place against the backdrop of the Iran nuclear negotiations, which up until only a few weeks ago had stalled. Well, now it's believed that the United States could be using those nuclear negotiations as a tool of leverage when it comes to increasing overall world oil supply in order to tame rising prices. Of course, that would be critical for President Biden. Not only has it been an election objective for him to get a deal on Iran done, but at the same time also facing significant domestic political pressure now with rising gas prices stateside and higher oil prices ultimately impacting the economic trajectory in the United States as well. So the security environment in the region is, of course, looking increasingly volatile as we see the war in Ukraine playing out. And you're right, Karen, it is the long arm of Russia perhaps having the, an influence on the Middle East at this point as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.